Well, for tonight's sermon, let's turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not, are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all those who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man who of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your, your abundant loving kindness, I enter your house. At your temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O Lord. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love, you, love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. The word of the Lord. You know, one of the things, I think every time that I'm reading through the Psalms, um, I come to Psalm 132, and I think every time I read it, I think to myself, am I like this? Let me give you just a taste of what he's saying here. The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction. He swore how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. When I read those words, I think to myself, you know, I've made vows to be in worship on Sunday. I've made vows to be, to, to be publicly worshiping the Lord on Sunday, to privately worship the Lord on Sunday. I've made vows to lead my family in worship during the week. I've made vows. And I ask myself when I read this, I think to myself, am I that determined to do what I have vowed? He's saying, I'm not going to give my eyelids sleep until I build a house for the Lord. I'm not going to enter into my own home until I find a place for the Lord. You see, David was with Nathan. David's talking to Nathan. Nathan. He tells, he tells Nathan he wants to build a temple for the Lord because he's in a nice cozy palace and the Lord's over here in a tent. And he wants the Lord to have a nice temple in which to live or dwell, if you will. And he gets word back from Nathan that God's going to build him a house. But he's going to let his son build the temple later. And so David devotes himself until he dies to prepare all this material 
for building that house his son is going to build in the future. And we have made these vows. And let me put it, and I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm trying to make a point. In terms of monopoly, I am not going to pass go. I'm not going to collect $200 until I have gotten myself to church to worship. I'm not going to pass go. I'm not going to collect $200 until I go home and make sure that in the morning or in the evening or however you do it, that you have privately worshiped the Lord. I'm not going to pass go and I'm not going to collect $200. I'm not going to be a bump on a log when I come home. Now, you know what? I was talking to, to Mrs. Gardner the other day and we, we had this great discussion about 30 minutes flat on the back. I can give you my lecture on 30 minutes flat on the back. Guys, women, come home, lay down 30 minutes flat on the back, get up and go for it. Get up and take care. If you're a wife, be a wife. If you're a husband, be a husband to your spouse. Go home, be a prophet, open up the Bible and read it. Go home, be a priest, go to prayer, lead your family in prayer. Go home, be a king in your home and read the scriptures to your family and teach them that Jesus rules over their lives. No one twisted my arm to make these vows, but I, and I made them. And the Bible tells us it's better not to vow than to vow and not keep them. Now, as we turn to Psalm 5, we see a man who is praying to the Lord and he's made it his priority to do this. And as he does so, he's leaving a trench behind him for you and for me to fall into. Now, I don't know about you. I can tell you a little little hunting story. When I used to go hunting, I hunted with all these men and they were all 25 years older than me and they always made fun of me. And they always hunted in the standard places to hunt. They always had their three-wheelers and their four-wheelers, and they always went on the cut paths. But I wanted to hunt in places they would never go, the horrible places. And I found out real quickly that at the beginning of the year, at least a month ahead of time, I better go out and I better rake out a place to walk or I was going to get hit in the face and I was going to have all kinds of spider webs in my eyes. And folks, listen, my eyes and spider webs don't go very well. And so I began to go out every year and make my own trench, my own path. And that's what David is doing for us. He's laying out a path for us in which to follow him in prayer. And Davis writes, the best posture for praying is to realize we need help. And praying will help us to keep our vows that we just talked about. He says this, I have the suspicion that in the Holy Spirit's filing cabinet, there is a folder marked instruction in prayer. And inside this folder, among others, is a copy of Psalm 5. Now, in the past sermons, we've looked at one, we've looked at one point, and that's the pattern of prayer. And tonight, we want to look at the proper approach in prayer. And finally, we want to end with the petitions David prays and teaches us to pray in prayer. In verses 1 through 3, we saw the pattern of prayer. And I'll just give you the the four bullet points really quickly. Direction. Who does he pray to? Who does he stare at? To the Lord, my God, my King. He gives us preparation. Now, we said that we can pray broken words, not so well-formed words, uh, desperate words. But he also, he challenges us to order our prayers. And that word means arrange our prayers. To prepare our prayers. And you can tell, um, we, we, prepare, we read sometimes even in our services, we read prepared words, well 
prepared words. And then there's devotion. In the morning, he says it how many times? In the morning, in the morning, he says it two times. And in chapter 6, Psalm 6, he's going to be in the evening. In the morning, in the evening. This is devotion. Before you get your day going, start it with the Lord. At the end of the day, stop and evaluate it and be in the Lord's presence. And finally, he says anticipation. He says that he looks to the Lord. He eagerly watches like Habakkuk in his rampart, looking for the Lord to give him an answer. Well, now that brings us to the proper approach. And there's three points here. God is holy, God is merciful, and therefore you and I must bow and come to God in reverence. First of all, God is holy. David knows something about this God that he approaches. He knows he is holy. And this is verses 4 through 6. These are alarming words. In fact, it was brought to our attention the other day that maybe we ought to address the idea that he says there in, in Psalm 30, when we, we sing the Psalm 33, uh, 31e, I hate those serving idols. Well, I think this sermon is going to help us. But look at what it says here. This is shocking stuff. Verse four, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. I mean, folks, we live in a sentimental world and these words are sure to shock sentimental ears. God takes no pleasure in wickedness. These are the words right out of David's mouth. God does not dwell with the wicked person. No wicked person can stand before God. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who sin. Breaking the, what, the falsehood, breaking one commandment, breaking another commandment, bloodshed, breaking another commandment, deceit, all of those are breaking commandments. Now, this, this let that sink in for a second. God is holy. This means God hates sin. God hates all who do wrong. God hates sinners. Before God, sinners cannot dwell. God destroys them. But pastor, what about that statement, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Well, folks, does it, does it surprise you that that's just a myth? Now, there's a balance here, so stick with me. We're not, we're not finished yet tonight. David tells us, this is what I know about God. He knows that God's holy. He knows that God hates evil. He knows that God hates the evildoer. He knows that he, he not that just hates lies, he hates the liar. He doesn't just hate murder, the sin, he hates the murderer. He doesn't just hate deceit, he hates the deceiver. <clears throat> As we take all this in, we understand and this is, I think, what we're supposed to understand. This is a God that's not to be toyed with. We don't just waltz into God's presence and act like everything's okay. This is not that kind of a God. If you and I are going to approach God, we have to know that He's holy. And David says in verse 7, But as for me, He doesn't walk in and He doesn't say, um, I know you're holy, so let me show you how holy I am. He doesn't walk in and say with the Pharisee in Luke 18, hey, let me tell you, I thank thee that I'm not like these people and I thank thee that I do these things and I'm doing these things. And he gives a grocery list of all that he does. David admits he's part of the soup. 
He's part of the pile of sin. You know, I had a person, I used to, Mr., uh, Dr. Bletcher will like this. I, I, in 1984, I rode my bike 10,000 miles. 10 months, 1,000 miles a month. And one of these men in my master's program said, you're the new and improved man. And of course I was, thank you, thank you, you know. But I'm not. I'm just like everybody else. Now, I was in really good shape. (laughs) But David says, I'm just part of it. But as for me, he says, how does David approach him? He says it, look at there really quickly. He says, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. It's, it's by God's abundant loving kindness that we can come into a holy God's presence, not because we're so good. God hates sin. God hates those who do what is wrong. And he's going to destroy me for it, David is saying. Sin levels the playing field. Psalm 143.2 says, No one living is righteous before you. Sin levels the playing field. David is part of the people on the, on the team of sin. And so sin is, is in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. All have fallen in sin. No one is excluded. There are no new and improved humans. We sin in secret or we sin defiantly in public. I, I love the story. I love to talk about the little girl who's told to sit down. She sits down. She turns around. You remember this? This, this is the story about the little. Uh, I, I think she's an Amish girl or something. She's sitting in down. She's sitting down. She looks at her mom and dad and she says, "I'm still standing up in my heart." Well, she's sitting as she's sitting and standing up in her heart. Well, then there's other people who are told to sit down and they just stand defiantly up and they just don't sit down. But whether it's secret or whether it's public, it's a sin. And we all know that um, there are some sins more heinous than other sins. Actual murder is all, always more heinous than hatred in the heart. Uh, if you go and you murder somebody, you're definitely going to go to prison. And if you murder somebody, you might get the death penalty. But if you hate somebody all day long, you can sit on a jury. And if you hate somebody all day long, you can teach math. And if you hate somebody all day long, you can play the piano all day long. But before God, they're both sin and they land you separated from God. And so the point I'm trying to make is God hates all sin. And God is angry with the wicked every day. And the wages of sin is death. I think it's really interesting as you listen to Rosaria Butterfield's lecture concerning homosexuality. She finally said she got it through her mind that God didn't mark off homosexuality and those who disobey their parents He's, there was, there's, there's, there's a difference in those sins, but they both land you separated from God in hell. Homosexuality is a more aggravated sin, but sin is sin when it comes to the end of your life. Sin lands us separated from God. It's not just out there in the heathen. It's not just those guys in the media spinning lies. It's not just those people spewing tongue murder on TV. It's not just bad legislators. It's not just people with filthy habits. It's in me. David knows God is holy. He knows God hates sin. He knows that God hates the sinner. And God's going to destroy the sinner. But he also knows that God is full of loving kindness. But as for me, your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. So as part of the soup, he comes before God and he approaches God based on 
loving kindness and abundant mercy. That, that word there in the New American Standard, it says abundant loving kindness. It can be translated mercy. So when you and I come into the presence of the Lord, we do not come on the basis of our good deeds or a good resume. What does, what does this mercy look like? I, I went and I, I looked up Matthew 18 and I thought about what Jesus gives a parable there in Matthew eighteen twenty three. Let me just read you part of it. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, commanded that he not only be sold, but his wife to be sold, his children to be sold, and all that he had to be sold so that repayment could be made. So the slave fell on the ground, prostituted, prostrated himself before the Lord and said, Having, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him for the debt. You see, before holy God, we are like this slave. We owe God a debt we cannot pay. Think about this. This man is brought before his Lord and he's told that he owes 10,000 talents. If you go, I'm going to get a little commercial. ESV is a very good study Bible. In the ESV study Bible, it says this. I just went to the ESV study Bible to find out what it would say, if it said something. And it said one talent is worth $600,000. 10,000 talents is worth $6 billion. Now, I know somebody like Elon Musk probably has that much money. But this, the point here is whether it's Elon, today's money or the days, that day's money, this is a debt this man could not pay. Ever, ever. In thousands of years, he could never pay it. And so the, the Lord is going to tear his family to pieces. The man falls down and pleads for patience. And unbelievable, the guy says, I forgive you and release you of all the debt. And this is how we are to understand when we come into the presence of God, we come with a debt we cannot pay. Six millions, billions of billions. We owe so much. And God says, I'm going to remove the debt from you. I'm going to pay the debt for you in the person of my son. And so we come to God as we pray. We come to God for our salvation. We come through His mercy, His abundant loving kindness. I, I'm, I'm reminded of the words that Paul says here in Ephesians 2. All of us love them. He says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now there it is. Paul is saying, before I was became a Christian, I was a child of what? <laughs> well, God hated my hated my sin, but he, he you know, God, he was a child of, of wrath. But God's also a God of mercy. Verse verse four. But God being rich in mercy. 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here it is, raised us up with Him. That's what mercy does. Mercy sees a person down. Mercy goes over in compassion, brings, praises Him up, and He seats Him here, He says, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. You and I, we may have our feet on the ground, but our hearts are in heaven. It's a promise. It's coming. And so this is how we must come to God when we pray. I won't forget when we were reading and studying through the, the information on Calvin about prayer. Calvin says, if you go and read your Psalms, you know what you'll find? You'll find that the psalmist, even though he's not talking about mercy, it's not far from his, from his mind. That's true. That's absolutely true. So God is holy. We approach God by means of his abundant loving kindness. And we come with reverence. Verse 7. In reverence, I will bow down toward your holy temple. Didn't we just study that in Isaiah 6? So here's Isaiah and he gets knocked flat on his face. And where is he? He's on his face. He's bowing low in reverence before a holy God. See, in C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, Lucy sees Aslan, the lion. She hasn't seen him in many years. And she says, you know, you look so much bigger to me than you did the last time. And he says, well, I'm not bigger. But every year that you grow spiritually, you will find me bigger. You will find my holy and I'm more holy than you ever thought. And you'll find that I'm more merciful than you could ever imagine. So this is how we approach God in prayer. He is holy. We come through his mercy and we bow low. That's the proper approach. Well, let's look at the petitions. So David is in the midst of enemies. Absalom, his son, his companions. He's in lousy circumstances and he prays three prayers. He prays for himself, he prays against his enemies, and he prays for God's people. So first, he prays for, for himself. And you and I, we are to follow his example. Pray for yourself. Verse 8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. The petition is this, lead me, lead me in your righteousness, make your way straight for me. It's, it's you lead me according to your righteousness. Don't lead me according to what I want, lead me according to your ways. And I think we can say David is truly in suspense here. He's fleeing from Absalom. He's fleeing from Absalom and his whole coup who have followed him in rebellion against him. And he's never been here before. So he's asking God to, to lead him. He doesn't want, want to take a step apart from the Lord. And in the day that in our normal routine days, we have you know sort of a rhyme and reason about what we do. You know, one day I'm wondering where my keys are. And the next day somebody in my family dies. And that makes, that kind of messes my schedule up. And when that happens, you know, we, we haven't been there before. Lord, would you lead me step by step through this? I don't know about you. I remember, I, I still, I still can see myself so oblivious to the world and college and so on. And um, I graduate high school and I played baseball all the way to August the 15th and had no thought about going to college. <laughs> in two weeks, I was in college. 
And I was sitting there when that baseball game was over and I realized I wasn't going to be playing baseball for a college team. It was like I had an earthquake event. What do I do now? And I think that's what we're what he's going through here. And every single one of us has prayed this prayer. It's short, it's brief, but every one of us has said, Lord, would you lead me step by step through this situation, this maybe nightmare of a situation. In 1998, I was driving what we call, what my daughter called the green car. I think it was a Taurus. It was a green car. And I had just taught about 25 people smoking cessation class for the Trinity Mother Francis Regional Health System. And I left out of there and I got in the green car. I drove down to the light. I turned left and I shouldn't have turned. I got smashed to pieces by oncoming traffic. And I'm sitting in a, in a telephone pole looking at it. And I get out of the car. I go see if the guy's okay. And then the paramedics come over and check me out. And it wasn't very long because my dad doesn't, didn't work far from the hospital. He came and he, and, he, and he stood over me. And he looked at me and says, you Okay. I said, yes, he's got his suit on. He looks so nice. <laughs> he reached down and he grabbed hold of my arm and he picks me up. Takes me over and puts me in the car. Makes sure I got my, my stuff, my, you know, my everyday carry stuff. Puts me in the car, closes the door, takes me home, puts me in the house, leaves me with Lori and Justly. I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. Talking about, God, I, I need you to like help me through like this, my, this dad of mine did, step by step. Lead me, Lord. Now, here's, here's a petition I think will help us to understand um, maybe Psalm 31e that we sing about, I hate those who serve idols. Verse 10, hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. This is an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer it means this, that David is asking God to judge the wicked. Did you know it's okay for us to ask God to judge the wicked? It's also okay for us to pray for the wicked. David's motivation here is not personal revenge. He's not saying, Lord, I want to use you like a hammer to get after the guy who hurt my feelings. It's not what he's saying. In fact, we, we not too long ago said that David, if there's anybody before this, on this side of the cross, we said that David was willing to forgive Absalom if he would just come back repenting. I think he would have. Wouldn't it have been an amazing thing. I think David would have been forgiving if he would have come back repenting and placing himself back where he was supposed to be. This is what we see in David. But David is crying out against those who are against him. Yes, he is, but he's crying out against them because they're against God first. He's crying out against those who rebelled against the Lord. He says, thrust them out. They're rebellious against you. They're against the Lord and they're against him, the Lord's anointed. Now, it comes, when it comes to language like this, we grow just a bit uneasy. But you cannot have a God as your refuge, and you can't have God as your protector. You can't have God as your shield unless God declares His and your enemies guilty and banishes them or removes them. How can David have any peace at the moment? And how can he have his kingdom restored unless the rebellious son and all those who are on the rampage against him, unless they're put down. 
They either are going to be put down or they're going to repent. Now in Tyler, Texas in 2000, I remember I was in the gym and I tell you what, there was a predator on the loose. And let me tell you what it was like in the gym. One of my women was raped. In the gym, there was no peace in the gym until the predator was stopped. And we were praying, stop the predator. And that's what David is saying. Stop the wicked, Lord. Give me safety from my enemies, Lord. Banish them, Lord. And God, he may see fit to beat down the wicked. The predator was apprehended. Absalom's revolt was beat down. Hitler's wickedness was beat down. God used nations to beat him down. And ultimately, Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to beat the wicked down. Sometimes we don't like to hear that, but God is going to do for the wicked exactly what ought to happen. Sometimes people say, Pastor Weed, I just don't see it. I see all these, these wicked people prospering. Go read Psalm 73. Go to church, he says, and you'll see destruction is written down for them if they don't repent. It's going to set all things right. It does. It grieves me, but it gives me a little bit of gladness to know that he is going to set the record straight. Well, third, we need to pray for our God's people. Look at verse 11. This is, this, is a good, this is a good point to end on. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you, let all who take refuge in you, all of God's people who take refuge in the, in the Lord, let them be glad, let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. So he's praying for two things for God's people. He's praying for pleasure and he's praying for protection. Let them who take refuge in you be glad. And let them, may you be a shelter around them, like a bird spreading her wings over her chicks. And he expects God to answer these prayers that he prays for his people. Verse 12, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround the righteous man with favor as with a shield. So we can even march back up to verse 3 and we are to eagerly expect God to answer this prayer as we pray it for God's people. David expects it and he says we ought to as well. Notice the words there in verse 12. You surround him with favor as with a shield. You surround him. You wrap him up. Now when, when men back in those days went to war, there were two kinds of shields. There was one you wore on your... Usually you fought with your right dominant eye and you had a sword in this hand. It was very a bad thing for um, there was a king that wanted to make a deal with the Jews, with the Israelites, about cut, taking their left eye, or I mean the right eye. Because people who were right-handed fought with a shield like this and they fought with their right eye dominant. If you take the right eye, they can't fight like They have to let the shield down. This is a little shield. But there's also a shield as tall as a man's body. It would wrap around the man's body and it would give him protection in battle unlike the normal shield with the sword in the right hand. And David is praying for God's favor to be wrapping around the people like one of these shields for pleasure and protection and intimacy. Helmut Tielich was a German theologian and when he was 10 years old, he was at school. He and his buddies had a classmate named Hans and they didn't like him because he was eccentric. He was aloof. He was different than them. Isn't that how it works? Oh, that guy's different than me. I'm going to go pick on him. 
And so one of the things that really, really, really made him upset is that this guy, he seemed so aloof in class. He seemed like he was always maybe looking out the window. But when the teacher asked a question, Hans would answer the question with perfect precision. And that made them even madder at him. So they decided that they're going to hide in the bushes one day while Hans was on his way walking to school and they're going to jump out and they're going to give him a thrashing. And so that day arrived and they're hiding in the bushes when Hans is walking down the road with his dad. His dad was holding Hans's hand and they're all watching this. It gets to a point where it's time to depart from Hans and Hans's dad reaches down and gives him a kiss. And Hans pops back up and kisses his daddy on the cheek. And all these boys are watching this. And then when it was all done, they separated and they kept watching the dad. And the dad turned around and he waved to Hans as Hans turned around and waved back to his dad. And they kept watching all of this. And so after taking all of that in, they decided that it would be better not to touch someone so wrapped up and loved by a father. Better not touch this, this Hans. I want you to think about how God has wrapped you up and loved you. I want you to think about how God has given you pleasure and has, has protected you. I want you to think about the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father <clears throat> who holds you at the very same time, one and the same time in John chapter 10. I want you to think about that and then I want you to turn that around and think about praying that for God's people. Pleasure. And protection. We began this sermon by talking about vows. Vows to worship God publicly and privately and at home. And if we go to the Lord in prayer and we go to the Lord based on mercy and we bow down and worship Him in reverence, surely this prayer will help us to keep our vows. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for uh, another evening of worship. Lord, I, I hope that no one in, in the room is having to go through um, something that's not part of normal rhyme and reason of life. But Lord, as we've studied, we pray that this prayer that we've learned from David would help us when those days come. And Lord, that you would instruct us to teach us how to pray for ourselves, to lead us through those times, how to pray against those who are wicked, and even as we pray against those who are wicked, Lord, it's our desire that they would come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would not need to be judged before your throne in the future. And Lord, we pray that we might know your pleasure and your protection and teach us to pray that kind of, that kind of blessing that we've experienced for those in this room and those who are not with us tonight. But Lord, we pray that you'll take us home Lord, to do your will this week with hearts that are glad, hearts that love you. Lord, when things go difficult for us this week, when we have difficult thoughts or things to go through, we pray that you will help us. Help us to be men. Help us to be women. Help us to be young people who love you and do your will from our hearts. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.